Today, we celebrate the triumphant entry where the king of kings comes in to the city of Jerusalem on a donkey and on a colt. And this is what starts the Passion Week. And I think for a lot of us, we don't see the significance of what we're going to celebrate today. We don't see the significance of what it means that the Lord came the way that he did, prophesied hundreds of years before he had come the way that he came. But today, my hope is that we really do get to see how important it is that this king would come the way that he did into the city of Jerusalem. I really didn't like not being here last week. Just putting that out there. I know. You guys were like, but Daniel was awesome. We don't need you. I know. I know. <clears throat> but I missed you, all right? And, uh, but I also knew that if I, if I came, I, I wouldn't just be able to hide in the back. And I wanted, I wanted to be able to hear about how God used last week, and I know that he did. I mean, people were telling me takeaways, and like, man, you never give me those takeaways in my sermons. Anyway, so, but it was... Man, I'm very grateful for what God spoke through Daniel, and uh, today we are going to endeavor to engage in the beginning of the Passion Week, the beginning of this week that is this culmination of uh, this huge part of the gospel of Jesus' perfect life lived and his willingness to go to the cross, and then the fact that he rises from the dead and ascends to heaven and one day is coming back. A lot in society today that I watch, read, and hear about is about self-exaltation. We're looking for ways to stand out. We're looking for ways to go viral, to be noticed, to be affirmed, to be exalted. These are the things that we're looking for, the, the things we want to experience. But as Christians, we cannot attempt to exalt ourselves. But we understand that we who identify with Jesus, we identify with Jesus because he is good. Isn't that an understatement? We don't need to look for ways to stand out because we are adopted into Christ's family and he has granted us grace in his incarnation, his perfect life lived, his death, his resurrection, ascension, and second coming. And because as Christians we identify with Jesus and not by our own accomplishments are we exalting ourselves, but we understand that he has accomplished for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Today, we're going to see what is in complete contrast of this world and how they believe popularity ought to be achieved. Today is the day we celebrate obedience. Obedience of the one and only Son who lived a perfect life, who perfectly obeyed the will of the Father always. And on this Sunday, Palm Sunday, we are remembering and celebrating that a humble king came into Jerusalem known as the triumphant entry that was unlike any coronation before or since for royalty. I had, a, I had lunch with a pastor friend this week, and he had just come back from Jerusalem. He had just gone on a tour. He had just walked where Jesus had walked. He got to see where Jesus preached. He got to preach while on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. Come on. And he experienced these things that a lot of us wish that we could experience. And what I noticed in him was a new passion for God's word, a new passion to just be excited to tell others about what he saw and what he experienced. He's excited to share this passion with his church this Sunday. 
And I can't take all of you to Jerusalem, just so you know. It's not like we have buses outside, all right? And honestly, I don't think pictures will do it justice. But I want to paint a scene for you. Jesus had traveled around the hills and valleys and cities near and throughout Galilee. He's preached the kingdom of God. He's healed the sick. He's forgiven people of their sins. And now after his three-year earthly ministry, he's coming towards the end of it, which will all culminate in what we call the Passion Week. This week signifies the week that Jesus will be on death row, even though he's a king. He will have a walk of shame, but not for him, for us, who are in desperate need of a king and savior. So let's go. Matthew chapter 21, as Laura read, we're going to do half a verse. I promise we'll get farther than that. Chapter 21, verse 1a. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, they, they were Jesus and his disciples. These people that had followed Jesus, had obeyed Jesus, had walked with Jesus, and they were now headed into Jerusalem through Bethage near Bethany, which is about a mile east of Jerusalem. It was known that the Messiah, the one the Hebrew scriptures had testified about, would be king. He would be reigning in the city of Jerusalem, according to Psalm 48. What we're about to witness is this coronation, the triumphant entry. The king of the Jews was now coming into town. This is important because this is the last public event that Jesus has prior to his crucifixion, which will be the next time we meet this Friday, for Good Friday. Verse 1b, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey, all right, I'm just going to say it once, (laughs) tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. Jesus gives instructions to his disciples to go and retrieve a donkey and a colt, and that would be his chariots, if you will, for this coronation. Not because Jesus was tired. He could have kept going. He only had 10,000 steps on his Apple Watch. Like, he could have kept going. But because it would show that this entrance was like any other entrance and not what most people would expect for a king. Jesus knew the scriptures. The scriptures were about him. The scriptures are him. He knew the prophet's words in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The donkey and the colt, they symbolize the fact that this was not just some man or some rabbi, but this was the king that the scriptures had testified to hundreds of years before Jesus came into Jerusalem. When we think of kings, we think of dazzling ornaments, don't we? Or for younger generation, we think of bling, right? That's what we think of when we think of kings. They have all of this stuff, and yet Jesus, the king of kings, King Jesus King, as we refer to him, comes into town not in luxury, but on a donkey and a wannabe horse, and a colt under a one-year-of-age horse that had never been ridden before. Jesus came in a Kia, not a Bentley. No offense if you came here in a Kia. They've gotten a lot better. I'm just And yet, that's the king that we worship. Earlier in Matthew, we see the gospel writer tell of an exchange with Jesus where he's talking to the mother of the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, and she asked that her sons be given special treatment. 
that one son would sit on Jesus' left and one would sit on his right. Jesus knew she didn't know what she was asking, and he replies with something I want us to hear in verse 28 of chapter 20. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. We have this humble king that we trust. We have this submissive king to the Father that we trust and we follow. And Jesus made much of the Father through submission to God's will. And we get to make much of Jesus by obeying his word. Religion wants to exalt man. Did you guys know that? It wants to exalt man. It wants to exalt the people that can do the law well enough. But regeneration by the Holy Spirit wants to exalt Jesus. When I first became the pastor of COV, there were some really conflicting cultures up in this place. Some people wanted to exalt me as Savior, and, you know, it sucks for them because I'm no Savior at all. Some wanted to affirm me because of the position that I held. Oh, pastor. Some wanted to control me like a political figure that they had helped get into office. Some genuinely wanted to get to know me as a person. And what was obvious was that there were different people that had different expectations of what a pastor meant and what a pastor is. And I am no king, but Jesus, the one I worship, the one I follow, the one I work for, he deserves the highest honor. And I am no Jesus. Even though I am a representative, I do not want to take any credit from Jesus or praise that is due him. Because when I or you attempt to take credit for something that God has created, which is you included, or gifts that you have. If we try to take credit from the creator, we are acting like the most beautiful angel who fell from heaven. Isaiah chapter 14 says it this way, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. This is Satan that he's speaking of. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit, like a mic you've been dropped, Satan. When those who are created attempt to take credit from the creator, we are acting more like Satan than we realize. And this is something we always have to check our hearts in. See, a prideful Christian church is an oxymoron. A prideful Christian is an oxymoron. This is from someone who's a recovering prideful Christian. It is so difficult to understand that, you know what, when you are pursuing Jesus, it's because the Spirit's working in you, not because you're good. You cannot come to Jesus with your head held high. You must come with a posture of humility on your knees if you really understand the gospel. The more responsibility that I've been given in pastoral ministry, the more I've realized something. I was an intern at one point. Actually, I was a youth leader at the beginning of my ministry. Then I was an intern. Then I was a pastor of evangelism. Then I was an associate pastor. Then I was a teaching pastor. Then I was a uh, uh, interim lead pastor, then I was a church planner, and now I'm the lead pastor. Here's what I've learned in that hierarchy of ministry, that it's not about me. And the more that we grow, the more that we look at Jesus for who he is, the more that we grasp the gospel as the foundation of why we have our breath and our being, the more we can realize it's not about us, it's about him. 
Now, I'm not saying in any way, even by saying that, that I am humble. God continues to expose things in me where I think that I did something. But as we've said many, many, many times before, you and I, we are not where we want to be, but praise God, we're not where we used to be. Amen? So let's continue. In the instructions that the Lord gave to his two disciples to go into town to find this donkey and colt and take them. Verse 3. Jesus says, if anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Okay, this verse is actually argued about by a bunch of theologians. Like, I love arguments in conjecture where I just look at it and go, you guys are wasting your time. There's this conjecture around this verse. The assumption is this, that the people who owned the donkey were believers, the people that owned these animals, they were believers. They knew Jesus. So when he, he said, go and tell them that the Lord needs them, they'll go, oh, the Lord, yeah, take our donkey and our horse or our, our colt. Some will argue that the Lord foreknew what would happen and that they would say yes. So he said, go in there because I already know they're going to say yes. And then others want to spend all their time saying, well, this is God's sovereign power over human decision. Hear me. It's just about a donkey and a colt. Relax. It's not, it, it, and I was going to say it's not that important, and yet, like the crucifixion, in all four Gospels, it tells this story. All four Gospels seem to talk about this specific thing, and so I think that maybe all three might be right, all three of those examples, but here's what I know. God is active in this world. Did you guys know that? Like, he actually loves you. Like, it's, it's weird to me that I have to remind people of that, but you know what? I need to be reminded of that, that God loves me. He didn't just die on a cross, rise from the dead, ascend to heaven. He's like, you're on your own. He sent his spirit to reside in us, to lead us, to change us, to challenge us, to convict us. And our God has a perfect and pleasing will. And those who want to argue about God's control tend to understand tend to not understand how beautiful that the God is who created you and how beautiful his will is. Think about this for a second. You have a finite mind and you are a finite person. You are someone who is very small in comparison, just like me, in comparison to the earth. You guys get that, right? Like you don't inhabit that much of, here's how much you have of the earth. Right here is all you got. And the earth is significantly bigger than you and yet God knows you. But God also willed that the earth would be the size that it is, spinning at the speed that it is in the universe. And so your, the comparison of how big you are in comparison to the earth, and the earth is so much smaller than the sun, isn't it? I mean, the earth is so small, and if we were any farther away, we would freeze to death. If we were any closer, we would burn up. And yet God knows you, and he created you in comparison to how small you are in comparison to the earth, how small the earth is in comparison to the sun, and how small the sun is in comparison to the largest star in our universe. I, I Googled it because John Colburn was going to call me on it if I didn't. Uh, it's called the UI Scooty as of 2000, it's probably not Scooty, but it's Scuddy? Sure, Scuddy. And it was found in, it, it, it was decided that in 2017, it was the largest star in our entire universe. And here's how big it is. It is 1,700 times the size of the sun. And even though all of that is under God's control, that God willed this incredibly huge star, this incredibly huge sun, this incredibly huge earth, and created you, 
Even though he wills all of that and it all spins at a certain speed at a certain time and a certain time in history, he loves you. So don't forget how finite you are, but don't forget how big our God is. And all four gospel accounts talk about this donkey, so apparently it's important. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here Matthew quotes Zechariah 9, making clear to the first century Jew that this incident was spoken about hundreds of years before it took place. Called it. And a donkey was not an animal that was considered of any worth. It was not a full-grown horse, but a donkey was a lesser animal that signified poverty rather than riches. And the meekness of our eternal king is in direct contrast how we tend to see kings of the past and really the kings of any era. Kings are show-offs, aren't they? They're not humble. They want attention. They want to put on display their riches and their power. But we worship a king that is like none other. Paul talks about this king in Philippians chapter 2. In verse 5, he says, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in, very, in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. This is our Savior, church. Hear me. This is our Master. This is our Lord who didn't make himself the point even though he was, but laid down his life for you and for me. And the one who is the point laid down his life so you and I could see him as the point. He came to seek and save those who were lost by entering into the lostness. He didn't send in a drone. He didn't send in an angel. He sent himself into the fray. I've been studying a few different books of the Bible lately, and one, who, one that I just adore, and it's so consistently about Jesus, is the book of Hebrews. And the writer explains how you and I can see Jesus as the point while understanding how we can actually know if we really know him. So if you're like, I don't really know if I know Jesus, here. Hebrews chapter five, verses seven through nine. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. We'll do a little work there. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect. Don't let that catch you up. We'll get there too. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who acknowledge him on Christmas and Easter. No, it's not what it says. See, Jesus was heard because of his reverent submission. 
Think about that for a second. Jesus did what you and I don't do. Any of you failed today? You just did, you liars. Absolutely, we fail. We do not do what the Lord would have us do at all times. I'm not even talking about not messing up. What I'm talking about is not doing what you ought to do. And Jesus submitted perfectly and fully, always. Once made perfect alludes not to his working to become perfect, but accomplishing all that God had told Jesus to do leading up to his death on the cross. And he became the eternal source of salvation. See, it wasn't the sacrificial system. It wasn't our good works. It wasn't our religion. It wasn't our overachieving. But he became the source of salvation for all that what? For those who what? Obey him. Obedience is the key to Christianity. And I'm going to let that sit there for a second because I think some of you, when you hear me say that, you think religion is the key to, no, obedience is. Jesus lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, is coming back one day. Like, a lot of people believe that, but they don't obey because they don't really know him. And that's why we talk so much about growing in the likeness of Jesus. This doesn't come by accident or by religion, but by relationship that drives us to obey him. See, growing in the likeness of Jesus by obeying his word for the right reasons is something we talk about all the time. Your motives matter, church. But here comes King Jesus King into town, into this coronation that does not show off his power or his majesty. Rather, it kind of looks like a satire of how a king would make a triumphant entry. But nevertheless... Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and Omega, the great I am, essentially puts into the city of Jerusalem on a lesser animal that even servants generally wouldn't ride. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. Peter did a lot of things wrong, right? Like, we know this in Scripture, and if this text is talking about me as a disciple, I'm pretty excited about this, because these disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them, but I'm not getting prideful because I know I can't do that unless the Spirit wills me to do it. See, I don't ever run towards what I ought to do. It's the Spirit who intercedes for me and intervenes and changes me to do the things that God would have me to do. And I think we miss what a big deal this is that the disciples would do as they're told. See, lack of obedience caused the fall, church. Obedience to God created sacrifice for our sin. Obedience is what the Holy Spirit leads us in. And without the Holy Spirit, without being redeemed by God, we can do nothing good. To do good works which God gave us means we submit to his word. And this word submit, we don't like this word submit. Submit has been hijacked by terrible examples of slavery. But to submit to God, to do as he says, isn't something we ought to do. It's what followers of Jesus are able to do because we've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Submission to Christ isn't a good idea. It's our reaction to grace because we understand that we needed grace. It's our response to God's lordship. We don't submit 
to him because if we don't, we're going to perish. We submit to him because in him we never perish. And it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. When we are willing to obey, when we're willing to submit, when we're willing to apply his word, we no longer make our faith about us. How many people have you met that say they are Christians, that they believe in Jesus, but don't do organized religion? They don't go to church. They don't read their Bible. Prayer is only when it's an emergency, and talking about him, well, that's for paid clergy. It's interesting to me when people identify themselves with Christ but prove by their lack of submission to anything that he says that they don't have the faintest idea who he is. Obedience to God's commands don't get you your salvation. Only grace does that. But they reflect your salvation to a disobedient world. And it makes us look peculiar. It makes us look different. You want to know where you stand with God? How do you view his commands? When you read scripture and you see a command, how do you view his commands? Are they burdensome or are they sanctifying? God doesn't give us commands to squelch our fun, but to increase our joy in him. And there's a purpose to your salvation. When you are included in Christ, you are included into his family. You are a resident of the kingdom of God. And as a resident, you have good works that you are able to do because God has willed you to do those. Check it, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Look at other translations. You know what prepared in advance for you to do is? Predestination. <laughs> That's what it says. Don't get mad at me. And being God's handiwork is an expression of being his trophy of grace, of being his poetry, of being God's child. The good works that we do in Christ are not humanitarian acts. They are works that are in response to God's godness. Good works God speaks about are obedience to his word. I don't know how much clearer I can be with that. So check your heart. Maybe you do obey. Maybe you do the things that when you read scripture, you go, I ought to do this. Do you do it out of guilt or do you do it out of grace? The motives behind our actions are more important to God than we realize. Why we do what we do is even more important than what we do in the kingdom. The motives of what we do may not be exposed to others, but they are always exposed to God. And you can't fake out God. He not only knows your deeds, he knows why you do what you do. So do you bring your works to God in obedience to the kind Savior who rescued you, or are you attempting to earn the gift that God freely gave to you? Verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. There was this intentional respect from the disciples to make this processional, processional one that showed that their king was worthy of honor. So they placed their own cloaks they took their own coats, if you will, and they placed them on the back of the donkey and the colt so Jesus would not have to sit on the fur of the animal. They didn't have Tide Pods back then. Stuff got dirty, but there was this intentional respect, so they placed their own coats on the animals, and this was in reverence for Jesus. 
Because he was worthy of people laying down their material possessions for him. Verse 8. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. A very large crowd. Many believe this to be in the hundreds of thousands lying the streets around this time as Passover was coming and spread their own cloaks and coats on the road to signify that the king of the Jews was coming into town. Others cut down branches from palm trees to lay on the ground to make known the importance of the royalty headed into town. And here's what it says in verse 9. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Imagine this scene, church. Jesus comes in with his disciples on a colt and a donkey, coats laid across their backs as he's ushered in. The crowds probably are making a subtle roar as they see Jesus, the king of Jews riding into town. A subtle roar would be like our generation, it's like slow clap. And all of a sudden you start to hear people go, Hosanna! And more are saying it, more are singing it to the king of the Jews riding into town. They're starting to shout Hosanna, which is a Hebrew expression, which means save now. The crowds were proclaiming pieces of Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. This crowd was elated. This crowd was excited. The scriptures were coming true. They were coming alive. The king had been testified about that he was going to come at this specific time according to the book of Daniel. And he was coming the way he was supposed to in accordance with what Zechariah and the prophet Isaiah said. And none of this was by accident or coincidence, but by God's sovereign and perfect and pleasing will. Verse 10 When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? (laughs) Like a guy at a party just having an absolute great time, and then he realizes it's somebody's birthday, and he's like, what? He was having such a great time. These people were so excited, and then all of a sudden, they realized that this was actually for somebody. The city was in a season of commotion. Remember a few years back when the Super Bowl was at Levi Stadium? Does anyone remember this? Five of us. Okay, it's only the biggest sporting event in the country, but okay, cool. And it was happening in Santa Clara. And if you didn't understand what a big deal it was, which obviously you don't, (laughs) you were probably like, why are all these streets being, why can't I go down the street? Why, Why am I not allowed to park here? Why can't I do things here? And a lot of people didn't understand what a big deal the sporting event was being held in your little city. And in this context, many of the city knew that there was a commotion, but they didn't know why. So then many in the city, many in the crowd who didn't understand the triumphant entry asked, who is this? Why is such a big deal being made for this person? 
I don't know if you've ever, I grew up in Los Angeles, so there was celebrities everywhere. And I remember being in Hollywood and I'm walking down a street with my, with my dad at the time and uh, this really doesn't matter who it is, but someone will ask after and so it really doesn't matter. It's Eric LaSalle from Coming to America and ER, okay? And he was walking down the street, all of a sudden, all these people, all this paparazzi with their cameras, not camera phones, real cameras, they start to run after him and take his picture. And people all around me were going, oh, what's happening? What's happening? And people are going to look, and they're going, it's Eric LaSalle, who cares? He was all right. Eric LaSalle, you guys don't even know who he is. Thank you. Most of my references only work for Mike and I. That's why we work together. And yet... If you've ever experienced a celebrity being around you and paparazzi paying attention, it, there's a break in the normalcy of life. And all of a sudden, heads are turning. People are attempting to get a peek at this person who many have seen through their TV screens or projector screens. And that could be an example of what's happening here as Jesus is riding in on this donkey and this colt. Or for some of us, at least this will connect with my bride, or like a parade going through Main Street at Disneyland as children attempt to get a glimpse of their favorite character dressed up in a really sweaty costume. See, some lose their minds over this. And some didn't know what was happening or why people around them were so excited to get a glimpse of this person coming in on these two lonely animals. Verse 11, the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Maxwell Smart once said, missed it by that much. Many knew the name of this local celebrity, but they didn't really understand his role. They saw him as a prophetic voice, but not as the point. They saw him as an earthly king, but not as an eternal king. They wanted him to come and overthrow the Roman Empire, but he didn't come for that. He came to overthrow sin. He came to fulfill what others thought that their religion would fulfill, but never could. And the crowd knew him, or at least they knew of him. They saw his power. They knew his words, but they did not want his kingdom on his terms. They would accept him on their terms, but not on his. They cared more about a worldly kingdom than a spiritual kingdom. And some understood who he was and is. Some followed him to the last moment, but most eventually turned away because the expectation was too great. And I wonder if that's some of us today. The more that God asks you to actually put into practice his word, the more you're going, you know, I'd rather kind of worship the God on my own terms. It doesn't work that way, church at least not biblically. And to humble yourself under a humble king is just too difficult for some of us to be willing to do. Let's just be real. The death of the innocent was about to take place so sin could be defeated. In seven days, we will celebrate the fact that death has been defeated. The tomb is found empty. Sunday is coming. He is not here. He is risen. And the coronation leads to the culmination of sin being defeated and the consummation of salvation being available for all who would repent and believe in the name that is above all names, Jesus Christ. Woo! That was Ric Flair. And I want to take you to the Gospel of Luke, where 
Luke is explaining the same coronation. He's explaining the same triumphant entry, but he concludes with some words that we don't see specifically in Matthew, but I think we need to, because in five days, we will celebrate the darkest moment in all of history, and yet the darkest moment in all of history is known as Good Friday, where he who knew no sin became sin so that we could have right standing before God. So Luke chapter 19, verse 39, some of the Pharisees, now if you're not familiar with Pharisees, they were kind of the legalists, they were the people that were teachers of the law and they wanted everyone to just live by the law even though they didn't do it. So some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rabbi, rebuke your disciples. The Pharisees didn't like that these disciples of Jesus were treating him as if he was the king of the Jews. This makeshift rabbi who hadn't done things the way that they wanted him to. And yet Jesus fulfilled the law of God without bowing down to the law of man. See, I love Jesus, but here's another thing about Jesus. I respect Jesus because he didn't do things the way you and I do them. He frustrated legalists while fulfilling the law. (laughs) He was, you ready? He was too liberal for the conservative and too conservative for the liberal. You want to know my politics? Jesus. Jesus' words back to the Pharisee is some of my favorite words in scriptures, in all of scripture, about worship. Here's how Jesus replies. Oh my gosh. I tell you, he says, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Look, Pharisee. If these people do not worship me, if they do not sing my praises, he, in, he implies, if they do not express their honor for the king, the rocks will cry out. The world that God created and sustains by the word of his mouth will cry out because this world is under his power and authority because he is the creator and sustainer of all things. Let me, let me say it the way I want to say it. Ain't no rock going to praise in my place. Ain't no inanimate object going to worship God more than me. Because I know, church, I am in need. I know I am a dirty, rotten, broken, tore up sinner without any hope of saving myself. I am aware of my utter spiritual deadness without Christ. I am aware of my spiritual bankruptcy. I know that unless God intervenes, unless he removes the veil, unless he does for me what I cannot do for myself, I will continue to walk in my sin led by my flesh, and without my debt being paid by someone who's much richer than me, I will continue to be enslaved to and be enslaved by my sin. That's some really bad news. But guess what? God intervenes. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive In Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, the resurrected Christ has resurrected me. Hosanna in the highest has saved me. He did not wait until I was good enough, church. 
He didn't wait until I, I was going to make things happen on my own. He didn't wait till I was smart enough because wisdom of man is folly to God. He did not wait until I was humble enough because I'm not humble without the Holy Spirit doing the work to redeem and change me. And only by submitting, by taking the posture of humiliation, can I come to my God redeemed. Not with our heads held high, but by skinning our knees in a posture of worship because he is alone is worthy of praise. He alone can save us. He alone is Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So, so I lay down my coat. I lay down my priorities. I lay down my plans. I lay down my life. And I trust that the one who laid down his life for me and then took it up again in just seven days is Hosanna. May this Passion Week be one that each of us understand God's passion for us. And may we turn in humble obedience to obey this humble king who stepped out of heaven, lived among us, died in our place, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and we eagerly await his second coming. And hear me, when he comes back, he's coming back on a much more powerful horse in a much more majestic way. And when he does, every knee will bow on earth and under the earth. And so may we, the people of God, call out Hosanna, knowing our need for a king who is worthy of our praise. Let's pray.